New draft guidance issued Tuesday by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends lowering the age for biennial breast cancer screenings from 50 to 40. The recommendations by the independent panel of experts are based on new data showing that rates of breast cancer for people in their 40s is slowly increasing. This is Pulse Check. I'm Megan Messerly. A new report from the United Nations found that the COVID-19 pandemic had a devastating impact on maternal and newborn health, with 4.5 million maternal newborn deaths globally each year. Prematurity is now the top cause of death among children under age 5, and yet fewer than one in three countries said they have the resources to take care of them. The report found that progress in reducing maternal and newborn deaths has slowed over the last decade, including because of pandemic disruptions. The Drug Enforcement Administration is extending pandemic rules that allow doctors to prescribe controlled substances via telehealth. Those rules were set to expire on Thursday, but will be extended through mid-November 2024 for certain patients under a rule published by the agency on Tuesday. And, as the COVID-19 public health emergency comes to an end on Thursday, the lifting of pandemic-era rules and waivers may have significant implications for Americans. Daniel Payne explains some key changes. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me. We'll get to the wonky policy details in a second. But first, what impacts are everyday Americans going to see? There are sort of two impacts that I see. One is really specific, which is COVID products like tests, treatments, and vaccines may cost people more money in the long term. And one's a little bit more abstract, which is that there's just going to be less of a focus on COVID from the government. And in a lot of places, just communities may have the sense that we're moving on. So there's also going to be a lot of changes for providers, telehealth, hospital reporting, and long-term care. Can you walk us through those? the big change is that we're going back to the way things were in 2019. With the pandemic came a lot of waivers of different policies and rules that providers had to follow. And a lot of those rules are coming back. So reporting requirements or different standards that had to be met to get payment from Medicare or Medicaid. A lot of those things are coming back. And there's sort of a question of how the return of those rules is going to interact with the continuation of COVID patients. Providers are still dealing with COVID patients in some cases, increased patient load and noting that there's been a lot of burnout and a lot of turnover among health workers. But these rules are coming back and they're going to have to be followed starting at the end of this week. I should say that some things are not going to change with the end of the PHE. So some telehealth rules are going to go on. In fact, just Tuesday morning, our colleague Ben Leonard reported that the DEA is going to continue some exceptions past the end of the public health emergency. So there are definitely instances where some of these waivers of rules, particularly for telehealth, are seen to be useful well beyond the pandemic. So the end of the public health emergency doesn't mean the end of all these exceptions across the board. And so the public health emergency ending also ends Title 42, which has allowed the U.S. to deny asylum and migration claims for public health reasons. What can we expect to see with that? I think the big expectation is that there could be a lot more immigration because of the end of this. The Biden administration actually sent something like 1,500 troops to the border to try to be ready should that happen. And there's a lot of concern at the border about what the impact of the end of a pandemic emergency, the effect that that might have on immigration as a whole in the United States. There are a lot of big changes coming down the pike when the PHE ends. What are public health experts and lawmakers saying about all of this? 
It definitely depends on who you ask. And there's been quite a bit of discussion and sometimes disagreement about what the right timing for this is and what it means and where public health experts and policymakers should be focused at this point in the pandemic. I think one important piece of context is that there is some alignment among global institutions on this. The World Health Organization late last week declared the end of the COVID emergency internationally, which is very much in line with what the U.S. is doing here. But if you ask some Republican lawmakers, they might have said that this should have ended a long time ago, and some tried to make that happen. If you ask some public health experts, particularly in the White House, they'll say that this is good timing, that this is a good way to get us sort of an on-ramp to the way that we're going to deal with COVID in the long term. But other public health officials say that maybe we need to be taking this more seriously, that COVID is still a leading cause of death in the U.S., and it's still a really big problem that we haven't fully addressed and that we need to keep addressing in increasing ways. What are you going to be watching for as far as the impacts of the PHE ending in the days and weeks to come? I think I'm going to be interested in sort of what this means for a whole of government approach for COVID how much the end of this designation really changes the way that a lot of agencies are thinking about COVID or acting on COVID. And for three years, we've really seen an effort to have the federal government work in a really unified way across administrations even to handle this outbreak and this public health emergency. So now I think there's a question of what the end of this designation means about how the federal government is going to respond, even if it's just sort of a sense of what that response looks like. The other thing I'm I'm interested in is the return of these waivers, like I said, how much are those waivers coming back going to impact the way that providers are working right now, given how much COVID changed other parts of the healthcare system? Taking a step back here, and this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in my reporting too, as far as the way that public has viewed the government's response during the pandemic. How might the end of the PAG impact broader public opinion about the pandemic and the government's response to it? I think in a lot of parts of the country, there are a lot of communities that have largely moved on from the pandemic a long time ago. And it sort of comes back to the same debate that's happening between representatives from all over the country and public health officials and public health experts trying to figure out what's the right response to what degree and how much should we be focused on COVID versus a lot of other pressing public health priorities. So I think it's really sort of an open question and one that one official designation does not totally define what the response looks like. But it is an important milestone that we've had to date about how the government is moving on beyond the emergency phase of the pandemic. Well, I know you'll be keeping a close eye on all of the developments from this, but thank you so much for taking the time to walk me through this today. Daniel, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Megan. You too. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Afra Abdullah and Annie Reese are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Amund is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Megan Messerly. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening. 